Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production. Our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to talk about what we want to talk about. About once a quarter, we stop and we just go, okay, what are we going to talk about for the next uh, six months or so, so or three months or six months? So um, we're going to be talking about that in the second hour. So if you've got ideas around mostly business, creative, those types of things, um, then think of those and throw those in. You can use Mukana as a way to create suggestions uh, or ask questions. Um, but remember, we're not going to be answering your questions in the second hour. We're going to be taking your subjects and putting them into a list. <laughs> like, hey, this would be a good idea if we want to talk about it. So if there's things that you'd like us to talk about, again, around business, around creative, around thought process and what we do, uh, this is the the probably the, the non-technical day where we still talk about technical, but we also talk about a lot of the things that the, the sinews that pull all this stuff together, uh, which is definitely a, a very, very key part of what we do. Uh, you can also ask questions throughout the hour. Uh, if you're in Mukana, go ahead and ask them and vote on them. Tells us when, when you want us to actually talk about them, which ones are the most important, or you can use this little QR code here. Um, this is, uh, you can go to askofficehours.com 24 seven and throw your questions in, and then we'll go through some of those and bring them into the show. Uh, so so uh, you can do either one of those. Um, this works all the time. So uh, go ahead and use it. Let's go ahead and jump into those questions. Bill, what do we have? Our first one this morning comes from Khalid Al-Majaya in Hassa, Saudi Arabia. And the ask is, hello, everyone. What do you think of the Magewell USB Fusion HDMI and USB capture device, in addition to two 1080p60 HDMI and one USB webcam inputs? It offers telestration using the companion app. It also supports inputs from AirPlay and Google Cast. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I'd say... Uh uh, wait, um, because we saw at IBC they came out with a new version with a touchscreen on it, and it's all operated by touchscreen, no computer required uh, with that Magewell or no app required to run it. So Magewell has a new one coming out that is all touchscreen-based and has most of the same features plus a few more, and it records as well. So uh, wait for that to come out. I don't know if they have it listed on their uh, website yet, but take a look at that. They just announced it. IBC. Yeah, and this is the, I think it's called the Director Mini, um, I believe is what it's, uh, what what they have it there. It's a one uh, live production streaming system. Um, and uh, it looks, it looks pretty interesting. You know, I think that, that for corporate, I think this makes a lot of sense. You know, I think that it, you need to have something that is relatively easy to operate, relatively easy to understand that you can put into a conference room and make it work. And I think that this is going to solve that fairly effectively. I'd still rather have an ATEM myself, you know, if I'm going to pay that kind of money for the same price as the one that you're talking about here and probably a little less than the one with the screen. I don't know how much the one with the screen is, but I'm going to guess that it's more than the one without the screen. Um, just call me crazy. But, uh, um, but it's, um, but for $1,100 or $1,000, I can get a mini extreme, which I have a lot more control. Um, so as a creative, I probably wouldn't use this, but I can absolutely see a very valuable vertical for this um, to sit inside of uh, for corporate um, uh, corporate conference rooms, especially small corporate conference rooms. Uh, this could be a really, really great solution. Next question. Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, B.C., British Columbia and Canada says, is there a way on an ATEM Mini to change the scaling and zoom in an input? Roland switchers have this setting, but I can't find it. I can't find any per input settings for this on the ATEM. Go, Jason. 
at because there aren't any. So yes, there's a way and no, you're not going to like it. Uh, if you use the DVE setting and set a macro such that anytime you switch to an input, you um, are punching in, it will, I guess, do what you're asking, but it's it's kind of a bit of a hack. Yeah, the D, the DV DV does scale. So so if I if I turn my DV on and I turn on one of my um, upstream keys, so this is not in the downstream key. I can jump in real quickly like that and then jump back. So that's there's your scale right there. Um, so that's uh, your that's a DVE setting. Um, and I think I think that's in the mini. It's in the mini extreme. I, is it in the mini itself? Yeah, it's does in the, the mini. Yeah, there's a DVE. Yeah. So so you can scale up within uh, DVE and that'll that'll make it work. Uh, next question. Funshak Dorji in Dharamshala, India, in next with greetings. Which one should I go for, the Zoom F6 or the Zoom H6 and reasons? Go, Jesse. This is an interesting AB because one of them is triple the cost of the other. If I had to pick blind, I would go with the... Um, the, the F6, the field recorder, uh, because it has 32-bit float audio. Courtney? Uh, yeah, when you look at the two, it depends on your purpose and what kind of recording you're going to do. As Jesse said, the, uh, uh, if you look at them, they, uh, the uh, H6 is on the left there and the F6 is on the right. The H6 has the built-in two microphones. It's really designed for like radio news gathering where you're doing interviews and you're shoving it in the face of the person you're interviewing. So it's an all-in-one recorder, and that's how most people use that H6. It does not have time code on it on the H6. The F6 does have its own internal timecode generator. And besides having two extra mic preamps that are accessible, easily accessible, you can get uh, extra mic preamps that replace this microphone unit on the top and give you two more XLR inputs on the H6. But uh, you don't have, you know, the, the mixing screen is so much better. And the controls are so much better on the F6. And you have a remote control app that works on the F6 so you can mix externally and put it on a cart. It has better battery interface on the F6. It has, like I say, time code. It has 32-bit float. It's uh, go the extra couple of hundred bucks, I'd say, and get the uh, F6 if you're going to be doing any kind of cinema type or television type double system sound for video. Uh, it'd probably be the better way to go. And it has, I think it has a little better preamps on it as well. Go, Jesse. And just to clarify, there's no phantom power on the XLR in module at the top. The four built onto the unit can have phantom power, but if you're using XLRs on the top, you can't have phantom power on those two. Next question. Next one comes to us from Eric Hertz in Hartford, Connecticut. And Eric asks, now that Zoom ISO supports SRT and Zoom supports AV1, when will I be able to get AV1 via SRT from Zoom ISO? I imagine that is in the works. I don't think it's available right now, but it we should wait for Zoomtopia to see if they talk about it a little bit there. That's getting we're getting close enough that we can I don't and I don't have any information about whether it's going to be in Zoomtopia, but I I uh, I do think that um, AV1 is obviously the future for many things here. Um so I think we can assume that Zoom ISO is going to support AV1. I just don't know exactly when. Um so I know I'm not answering your question, but we just don't have that information yet. Next question. Eric Hertz is right back. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, right back with another one that's uh, associated. What is the best hardware or software for encoding AV1 as part of an on-site production kit? 
I probably wouldn't use it right now. It's still, I mean, we're waiting for a lot of people to kind of put it together. Uh, really, I think that you you want to wait and wait for some of the dedicated encoders to really pick up on this. So this is something that's slow moving. I don't think I would use AV1 in production at the moment. It's still pretty early, um, and I'm not sure if it would, you'd, you'd have, there's a lot to test. Um, so I would recommend testing AV1 for probably the next year you know, and using it in parallel to a lot of other things. Um, but I wouldn't push it as a, as a actual delivery mechanism for a little while. It's still, it's still pretty new for everyone. And that, I don't know, I'm not a big fan of new. <laughs> so I, I like the things to be not old, but not brand new. You know, there's a, you know, they, you know what they say that there's, if you're one step ahead, you're a leader and two steps ahead, you're a martyr. I prefer to stay in the leader position. Um, so, so I, this one would be a little too far out right now. Next question. Graham Cardwell in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Up next, I have a Sennheiser radio mic kit. It consists of an EW100G3 transmitter and an EW300IEMG3 receiver. Looking at the Rode Wireless Pro as a replacement slash upgrade. Use cases on field sports, so the range and on-unit recording are both of interest to me. Any thoughts? Courtney? If you're talking about the Rode Go Wireless Pro, the new one that they came out with, I'd be uh, hesitant. The the two Sennheisers that you have are uh, higher frequency, are 400 giga, uh, megahertz, I think. And the all the Rode Goes and the, the uh, DJI, which is what I'd recommend over the Rode Go anyway, because it has this much smaller transmitter, but it's at 2.4 gigahertz. And the problem with all these 2.4 gigahertz transmitters is they're nice and tiny, but... Uh, they don't penetrate very well through bodies. And if you're going to have something like on a ref who's out in the field surrounded by a bunch of players wearing pads and stuff, uh, you may have trouble getting through the humanity if your receiver is not up high. So if you put your receiver up high, it may be okay. But uh, these don't have as good a range as the Sennheisers do. Um, so you'd go with that. But this one also has 32-bit float. Uh and since it's smaller, I'd probably go with something like this and a, uh, a remote, an external uh, lav mic that comes out of it. Uh, and if you have to put a switch, you might have to put a switch on it uh, if it's a ref mic so that they can turn it on and turn, turn off the mic module uh, remotely. Uh, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Jason. Ditto to what Courtney said. Um, yeah, 2.4 gigahertz is a terrible idea anytime there are going to be a lot of people, not just because of the bodies, but also because of um, of the fact that 2.4 gigahertz is extremely saturated. So, no, n not the same and probably not a good idea. Next question. Next one comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What's the lowest end, cheapest B-Link type computer and highest end, most expensive B-Link style computer you would use? Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, I'm using the Melees instead of the B-Links. The, uh, although B-Link, uh, the advantage of the B-Link is they do make very powerful small form factor uh, machines that are... No, why did you move to the Melee from the B-Link? Uh, because I like the fan, because uh, B-Link had one fanless, where is one? I had one here somewhere. Anyway, I had one. The half-height one was the original B-Link. Right. And uh, they discontinued that, and they went to that two-inch tall case, which was a lot harder to squeeze behind a monitor and fit in tight places. So I went to the Melees, and the Melees are fanless, 
and a lot skinnier, you know. And, the, you know, the ones like this or the quieter two or quieter three have room for an NVMe drive inside them so that you can add up to four terabytes local storage so you can use it as a media server and so on. Uh, so they're really handy. And the, uh, the uh, Celeron processors that they have in them that are quad-core are certainly good enough to do media serving. I have it playing back, you know, ten, nine or ten HD videos simultaneously off of one of those melees. So it can handle the decode H.264 and HEV decode easily. Um, however, the since they since uh, B-Link stayed with this uh, form factor of about two inches tall case, and it's about the size of a CD uh, jacket. Uh, they can put much more powerful uh, uh, laptop uh, uh, PC, you know, PCs in there, laptop uh, CPUs. So they they have Ryzen nines, uh, which have you know, I don't know, six cores, twelve cores in there. So you can get a really powerful how powerful ones. But they go up in price to about a thousand dollars, and these quieter twos you can get for around two hundred bucks. So big difference. If you need the power, if you need to go on Zoom with a 1080p, I'd go for the B-Link because it has enough uh, cores to qualify for Zoom's uh, <laughs> input for t uh, 1080p. Otherwise, they limit you to 720p. And uh, and they're powerful enough to do, you know, handle most of your editing needs uh, on the uh, on the B-Links with the taller ones because with those Ryzen's in there, you can get a, a pretty powerful... Uh, a powerful machine, equivalent to most desktops of a year ago or two years ago. I always find it interesting when you're talking about the B-Link, you know, and you, they, they took away the one that you use the most, and then you went off and found another brand, and now you're buying that brand. If you wonder why a lot of, you always think, why do people not change their interface? Like, they know that there's something that they could make different or better, whether it's YouTube or Facebook or whatever. And it's interesting how if you make the wrong choices, uh, how people will <laughs> suddenly go into a state of, I need to find something new, and then they then they never come back. You know, and, and, they, and you kind of lose them as a brand. I, I noticed a TikTok changed something about their interface, and my usage of it dropped 90%. Like it was like, it was like, it went from being, it's a weird little button. And they used to be able to, used to be able to search at the bottom for, uh, I like that. That's funny audio. I want to see all the things with that funny audio. And they took that away and they put something else in that little search area. And I literally lost interest in TikTok. Like it was just, it was just an amazing and, and, but it's, you know, it was like, I was like, this is the, this is a great platform. And then it was like, eh. and it wasn't something that I noticed, I just realized I'm not watching TikTok anymore. Like I just, you know, I'm not, I, I, uh, I just stopped watching it because I couldn't do this one little thing that I, that I enjoyed doing. I have no idea whether I'm representative, but I do think about that a lot as you have to be very careful of how you make those changes as a brand, because you can quickly put people into a search, mech, you know, into a search routine, um, which is uh, churn is something that everyone talks about. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and there's this new mini form factor that you're seeing now come out from China. This is an F9. It's called F9 from a China, from Shenzhen. Uh, and it has, look, it's just covered with ports. It has two gigabit Ethernet ports. It has three HDMI, uh, three USB uh, 3 ports. Uh, it has three HDMI ports. And it's this size. It's the same. This is the same height as the B-Links. But these is, this is the new mini PC form factor that you can get them. I mean, you can put an in, a half-length half NVMe drive inside here. It comes with one. 
and you can choose up to a, up to about a terabyte of local storage in here as well. It comes with 16 gigabytes of RAM built onto the motherboard too, so it's it's plenty capable. Uh, but most of them, most of these come with the Intel chipsets, the uh, um, Gen 12 uh, uh, Celerons, which are quad core. Good, Nigel. Yeah, the computer that Courtney was just holding up looks a lot like a NUC, and I don't believe they're making them anymore. At least the company's closing up. So well, is that the Intel got out of the NUC generation? Yeah, the NUC. Uh, but those were just usually just used as as you know uh, example machines for other manufacturers to manufacture. Yeah. You know. Good, Bill. And, and just based on what you were talking about, it really resonated with me because I find now my tolerance for disruption in just my daily patterns gets less and less the busier I get. When I when I have a lot of time, I don't mind if I if I look at something and they've changed it and I say, okay, let me take a half an hour and figure out how the new one works so I can keep doing what I'm doing. But more and more these days, it's like, oh, it doesn't work the same way. Well, I'm just going to set it aside and do the things I have to get done and <laughs> Half the time, I don't ever get back to it. So I find I'm leaving technology behind because of that disruption more and more. And it's not major disruption. It's just something that was easy and thoughtless for me has suddenly required my complete attention until I solve it. And that's enough of the negativity to send me in a different direction. It's weird. Yeah, or, or yeah, exactly. And it's not so much leaving it for me, it's not leaving it behind, but suddenly I'm interested in new options, you know, and that's the thing that you want to try to avoid having doing with customers. Next question. Next one comes to us from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. What's the recommended rack mount for current generation Mac minis? Jason. They're a fair number, but uh, you can't go wrong with the rack Mac mini. Uh, they've, they've updated it for the current uh, set of uh, Intel, or I'm sorry, not Intel, but everything from 2011 through the M2, and they work beautifully. The difference and what you're paying for with the Sonnet is that you never need to remove them. They're designed to basically have the right port compatibility such that, um, yeah, you even have power access um, on the front to the back. Mitchell? Looks nice, Jason. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Sonnet. Never uh, let me down. And the fact that you can put a, a PCIe card uh, on it at the same time makes a lot of sense. So I'm I'm going to back up the uh, the Sonnet. And if you jump to a Mac Pro, Apple would be happy to uh, sell you one with a rack built in. Next question. John Fischler in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I'm looking for a small case to protect an Insta360 link camera and Shock's OpenCom 2 headset together when traveling. Any recommendations? Yeah, I think that the, I think John brought this up yesterday and we said, well, here's how you protect the, the, uh, Link 360. And then we said, and then the, sho the shocks don't need protection. Just shove them into little pockets everywhere. And I don't think he was, I don't think he was satisfied with that question. So, um, how to put those in together. Um, I think that the only thing I'll, I'll show you what, um, uh, let's see if I can find it really quickly. Um, the, uh, I have a case that I used for, um, that it's kind of a general case that I'm trying to find really quickly here. I don't think I have it with me, but there's a, I've, I have a, um, uh, let's see here. I'm just trying to see if I can find it really relatively fast here. Um, the, 
I use a, I have a case that will hold that I use for my, um, my mobile kit that I don't have right in front of me right now. Um, but it holds um, an ATEM mini as well as all my cables, as well as my USB pre and my mic and all of those bits and pieces are all fit into one thing. And, um, it's more than you need, but I don't think that there's anything that's exactly what you need. Go ahead, Courtney. You know, if you just go on uh, on Google and search for makeup cases, because a lot of these companies make these travel makeup cases. Some of them have the clear sides on them so you can see what's in them, uh, which may or may not be an advantage for you. Uh, You would have to probably uh, uh, devise a some fo- a little foam cutout for the Insta360 to fit in, but these cases would probably hold the shocks and the uh, and your headphones in them uh, easily. So if you look for makeup cases, there are lots of them around. They're kind of ex- you know go from about nineteen bucks to about uh, seventy five bucks, depending upon some uh, designer's label that you put on it. But if you don't get the designer label, uh, you know you can get those are about the right size and they're designed for carrying on planes and then carry on luggage. And Courtney gave me just enough time to find this case. So um, this is the, uh, you can see I've had this case for, uh, since May, (laughs) as you can see from here. Um, And uh, this is the case that I use um, here. And if you see that this has two areas, um, and it's not very expensive, 25 bucks, you can see it opens up uh, here. So um, that's the the real key to the operation here is that I put my... uh, larger stuff down here. So that's where the, this is where the ATEM and the mix pre and the power supply go um, down below with um, my mic goes underneath here. And then all the cables I need go up in the top part here. And it is, um, it's super, super useful. Like it, it, it has been, uh, when I started using that, it really reduced any kind of clutter that I had and I can now set up very fast. One little trick that I don't think I have, um, I'm trying to find a cable here. Let's find it. One thing that I that I did that made this transforms it, I'll just give you a little extra here, is that I put a piece of tape right where I need it to be. So when I roll it like this and I squish it up like like this, it it's going to fit perfectly at the right height. So I, I use pieces of tape somewhere on the cable to define my loop. And um, I do that a lot. <laughs> so, uh, but I, cause I like my loops to be exactly what, what I need them to be. And so, um, you, you'll find that in that a case like that, all your loops will work well. If you, uh, if you define them with a piece of tape, it allows you to really quickly figure out exactly how long, how big the loop needs to be so that it folds correctly into that area. Good, Bill. And if you want to be really safe, Pelican does make micro cases that are very, very small. And so you can probably find the right size. They have two or three different sizes. That was a 10, 10. So options. Yep. The other thing that, that's nice about um, if you're putting those together, the one thing that is nice about the ones that I showed yesterday, which are there's a, um, a Insta360 case that you can get. Um, it has a cutout in foam that you can put the, the camera into. The problem with the, the Insta360, I think that they could fix this, is just that the, the it comes it doesn't come with something that's nice that you can just pull out of the box that it came with and shove it into something else to protect it. And so you kind of have to figure out how you're going to build something that's going to protect it around it. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I did uh, design a, a 3D printed case uh, for my Insta360 that it, it slides in there camera top and it reorients the camera automatically so it's lens down when you slide it into the case and uh, then you put a cap on it like this and you can print it out of TPU or PLA. Uh, Maybe I'll put that in Discord uh, if I can find it again for 
Yeah. Anyone who wants to put that up and put it into a makeup case. And this keeps it, this is about as small a, a firm case as you can put on it uh, so that it'll protect it from being knocked around, the gimbal from being knocked around. You know? Yeah, and that's that's exactly what, what I worry about there. This is, you can see, this is the one that I use, um, that I put my Insta360 in. This is this little um, V, V, I don't know, Vigshin. Uh, and it's, again, not very expensive, but it has, it's worth getting it just for that little cutout. <laughs> so if you're not going to go through the trouble. 3D printing it, that little nice little foam cutout, you can pull out and put it into something else. And so think about that as well. All right. Next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. Could a micro studio camera make a solid monitor top camera for meetings? Jesse? I am and have always been a huge fan of the micro cinema cameras. I'm going to say absolutely yes. I do want to tell you the things that are going to frustrate you if you've never used a micro cinema camera. There is no touch monitor that you can plug into it to give feedback to the camera. So you're going to be doing all of your menu changes through their very odd uh, button configuration on the front and it will never feel comfortable or good. Uh, the, the only reason we retired the cinema, the micro cinema cameras is because we needed to be able to apply LUTs to our, our footage. Uh, they seem to have cured this. Oh, another thing to keep in, keep in mind is you're working in 1080p out of the HDMI and probably out of the USB as well. Uh, the 4K is only through SDI. I go, Jason. Ditto for, uh, for what Jesse said. I haven't used the new ones because they don't exist yet. But yeah, they seem to have cured a fair number of my problems with the, the micro studio camera. Uh, don't use the mics. Uh, I'll just leave it at that bad, bad, bad <laughs> yeah. idea. One of the things that I, it does have a USB. There's a bunch of things that they've done well, um, you know, that I think that they've really transformed. So number one is it has a normal power. Before you had to have this odd pin, you know, this nine pin that would carry all kinds of things. And that was the only way to get power into it. Um, and that was super annoying. And so they've gotten rid of that as standard 12 volt. They have a USB-C. I don't really understand why they didn't just take power out of the USB-C. A lot of the cameras now um, will take power out of the USB-C, and I'm not sure why they, they chose to have a separate power supply as well as a USB-C when they could have done both at the same time. Uh, but they do. They, they did that. And, but I think that what you're going to be able to do with the USB-C is uh, eventually they have some APIs for the cameras. I know that they announced it for the other cameras. I, I think that you'll probably have it here. So you'll be able to have a lot of uh, custom control over that camera without using the interface, which, as Jesse said, is um, a little archaic. Um, the ability to put the LUTs in, I think, are going to be really useful. Still only micro four thirds, which really limits a lot of your powered lens options. Uh, and I, you know, I, I, I will say that at the price point, they're kind of halfway in between. I think that the, if I got this, I think it would be because it was part of an ecosystem that I want to be able to shade the camera and I want to be able to control it from my ATEM switcher. So those are the reasons to get it because Sony has the, what I'm using, which is the EV10, uh, below the below that cost at, at about $700. And then Sony has a, a new uh, LX1, which is at $2,500, which is a full frame sensor at a very small package. So it is kind of threading that needle between the two Sonys. Um, and I think that if it's part of a larger Blackmagic ecosystem, I think it makes sense. If it's, if it's on its own as a, just a simple web camera with a digitizer, uh, I'm not sure if it makes sense. Go ahead, Jesse. I, I believe that the USB decision was because it's just the 4K in a different body and without the monitor. And uh, this is going to be great for our use because we want that USB for uh, SSD drive record of raw footage and we want power mm -hmm. to be a separate supply. Right. That makes sense. Jason? Yeah, I just double checked. USB-C with an Ethernet adapter will 
um, natively on day one support the uh, the REST API. So that's going to be a big deal, you know, for us, you know, for a lot of us being able to develop for that camera. And I think that's important for a camera, that form factor. Next question. Uh, Mohammed in Karbala, Iraq says, how can we find AJA SFPs, small form factor pluggables, if we face SFP issues? Uh, you know, generally you can, you can, um, these are, these SFPs are, are something that we keep in reserve most of the time. So uh, it is hard, it is hard to get them. Now we can order them. I believe you can order them directly. I mean, or from, we've ordered them, I think from B&H is where we, B&H uh, and getting them in Iraq could be a lot more complicated. Um, so, you know, I think that you're probably, I don't, there's not a lot of supply, um, you know, for them. Um, so I think that what you want to find and I know this will take a little bit of work, is you just really have to find someone willing, able to bring it in um, by hand. It's, it's, it's the kind of thing that probably would, um, I've been, I've gone to Iraq and brought some electronics in and I don't think it would be something that shows up as, as a real problem, <laughs> you know, like that, that was there. Uh, even if it was expensive, I'm not sure if anyone would know, know what it was because um, it's just this little, this little rod with some, some connectors on it. So, um, but, it, but maybe so. It, it could be a problem. I've only been to, to northern Iraq, so um, so the uh, but it's a very small form factor. Markertech sells them, um, and a couple other uh, suppliers do. Um, but I I will say that it takes time, even in the United States, sometimes to get these. I think they're oftentimes they're back ordered, or they take seven to fourteen days. I don't know how long is that. Is that one ready available? Bill, I can't see it in full. I don't know. I, this is just the Markertech page. It says add to cart, so it may be available. Let's go down and see if it says anything about ordering. Yeah. Uh, no, California mm -hmm. residents warning, but that must be something in there that's yeah. It looks like it, it might be available there. Yeah. So it's, yeah. but they're, they're oftentimes those SFPs can be, they, during, at least during COVID, they were really problematic. They, we really had some issues with being able to, to, um, have that work. So, uh, definitely stay ahead of it. Um, but I think that typically what I would probably do is try to have it delivered probably to Dubai. And then, and then I'd probably try to take a quick flight to Dubai from um, from uh, Iraq to pick it up, you know, or something like that, because I think that it's going to be hard to ship in um, to the into in, into the country. Um, so I, I don't. I wish I wish I had a better solution for you, um, but it is these are these are these little quirky <laughs> things. Uh, usually, most people in that region end up in Dubai to pick them up. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next, and Douglas asks, are there any lighting fixtures that accept SACN S S S or ArtNet directly, and when will DMX on 5-pin XLR become obsolete? John? Douglas, I asked the same question when I started buying all my DMX stuff. I said, why didn't they put Ethernet directly on these fixtures? And I got all kinds of interesting answers. It's, it's too hot. The heat was too much in the in the housing of the light itself was one cost and legacy infrastructure of having those those cables DMX cables everywhere in the lighting rig. So who knows? I think some of the higher end ones are putting Ethernet on on the fixtures themselves now. Bill, yeah. As to obsolete, the problem is there's a gazillion devices out there that have standard five pin DMX on them, and so if you uh, if they make them obsolete. You're going to have to adapt all over the place, and it'll be a mess, I think. Courtney? Yeah, Wi-Fi modules have gotten so cheap, they can just build them into a lot of uh, products. So the wireless DMX is, is now being built into a lot of lights as well. Yeah, I, I think you just have a certain level of inertia and cost. So um, even a $20 light can have a three-pin 
DMX built into it because it's a really, really simple protocol that isn't very expensive to support. So, um, so you know, you can buy these very, very inexpensive lights. You would need more circuitry there that would probably potentially increase the price significantly if you if you did that. So I think that that's that very well could be part of the of the challenge there and that everybody already has all this infrastructure. I think it's easier to tie it in. I, I do think that eventually we're going to get to a Ethernet-based um, systems that start to come out, but it's probably still a little ways off. Next question. David Brady in New York City says, I noticed that the office hours bug in the corner of the YouTube player isn't present on the YouTube app on Apple TV. Wondering why is that? I'm going to guess that that bug is generated um, in the browser, you know, so it's it's actually um, generated there um, or, you know, it's and it's not burned into the system. So um, so I think that 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 may be the case, because I, I also think that it will float over top of your screen as you get it bigger. So I think that's a browser operation and not a not a uh, it's not the raw video file. I bet you if you went and downloaded the file from uh, YouTube in whatever tool you use to do that, whether it's um, sometimes you have a, the ability to do that with, um, you know, if you're if you have a premier account for some videos, also things like Downy4 will will download it. Um, but I bet you the, it's not there either because it's being inserted by the browser. Next question. Chester Sweeney's up next and asks, during smaller live gigs, do you bring a room temperature gauge and put it near the equipment? Jason? Um. Uh, no, actually, the way that I do it is uh, with one of these little guys, one of these these tiny little uh, IR guns with a little laser pointer that's somewhat calibrated. It's not perfectly accurate, but again, um, I always look beforehand and and get my own sense of the temperature of the room. Ask how many people are going to be there, and um, you know, do my own calculations for cooling. And then uh, the little gun thing is just for spot checks. Courtney. be a while to get my mute uh yes uh i don't know if you're gonna be, it'll be able to do anything for you but if you're looking to spot hot spots uh like uh, jason said you know you can get a FLIR adapter uh forward-looking infrared thermal camera attachment uh for your phone uh and that does uh, a great thing because it uh you know you can get them as cheap as let's see here's one for 299 oops bounce uh Two ninety nine that go uh, on your phone and feed into an iPhone. You can see it has a lightning connector on there and gives you a infrared camera, basically that you can just look pointed at your your stack of equipment and see where the heat problems are uh, visually uh, without having to point the little laser pointer at every little little tiny place. So that's a good thing. And you, uh, once you know where the temperature problem is, you have to be able to do something about it. So uh, if you bring a portable air conditioner, you can do something about it. Asking the venue to turn up the air conditioning and making everybody in the room cold may not be an option. One of the things that we do have is we oftentimes have temperature gauges within the fans. So about um, oftentimes when we don't know where we're going, uh, every two to four slots in a in a build. So when we're building a rack, um, oftentimes if those are if these are going out to venues we don't know, every two to four slots um, we're going to put a fan, and those fans have temperature gauges on them. So oftentimes you can get a, a sense of what the temperature is just looking at that from top to bottom because they all have little numbers on them that are telling us what the temperature is, and it's decide it's also driving 
whether those fans are on or off or, you know, other things like that. So those are set the threshold. So that gives us a sense of that. As Courtney said, um, the FLIR is a, is a pretty solid solution for it. You can spot check with a laser pointer, but the FLIR gives you a lot more information quickly um, to understand what's, what's actually happening and if you have a, a serious problem there. Quick reminder that, of course, you can ask questions throughout the first hour. Um, so go ahead and use Makana or uh, you can use uh, askofficehours.com. Um, and there's a little, you can, you can use the QR code here. Uh, uh, you can just point your phone at it and, and it'll take you right in. You won't have to lock in. Uh, or you can just, just type in the URL, which is askofficehours.com. And that's the easiest way for you to throw questions in. And then we'll go through those questions and bring some of them into the show. Next question. Brody Hefner in New York City says, while trying to link a wireless keyboard to a Melee Mini PC, I note that Logitech's troubleshooting guidance recommends trying a USB 2.0 port if a 3.0 won't connect. Aren't USB 3 ports supposed to be compatible with all USB 2 devices? Go ahead, Courtney. They are backward compatible to USB 2 protocol, so uh, when they handshake, they should decide on the speed of operation and protocol to use. So when you plug, unless Logitech is using some uh, non-standard protocol for interconnect on their keyboards, uh, it should be able to plug into any USB 3A type port and uh, use it correctly. Uh, the only difference is, you know, a USB 3 is pulled more quickly. So uh, maybe something is, you know, a problem for some reason that uh, the USB 2 connection, it's missing uh, missing uh, data transfers or something because it's too slow. I, I, I don't see that problem ever happening. I've never had that problem happening, although I am having problems with my USB ports right now see, on video. Maybe that's it. <laughs> so, I've never seen that problem. I've but plugged into both USB, USB 2 and USB 3 because the ATEM output is USB 2 compliant. Uh, so uh, I've tried both, and I have the problem on both. So I. I, I know that from a power perspective, there are definitely certain things that I use that need to be USB 2 because it'll draw too much power and it just turns off really quickly. So like the Nanlite um, Pavo tubes will not charge with a USB-C to USB-C cable. You need a USB 2 to USB-C cable to connect those um, so that it will, uh, or it just won't pull, pull a charge. And so some devices can have a safety procedure where they just won't take any voltage because it's coming in um, uh, more faster than they than they expected. There's a couple devices that I've had that that will do that. Next question. Eric Hertz in Hartford, Connecticut asks, can I use a Sonnet box and an AMD Alveo MA35D processor via Thunderbolt to a Mac Mini running Mimo Live, all to encode AV1? Jason. Oh boy, I went all the way down on the rabbit hole for this one. Um, by default, my answer is no, unless it's explicitly coded for Mac OS. In general, it needs to be, it needs to, yeah, as a rule, no. However, they are in pre-release and they are early access. You need to email media-acceleration at amd.com and ask them. Yeah, and, and again, I would consider AV1 still a lab project. Next question. Graham Cardwell in Belfast, Northern Ireland's up next. Struggling to get video from a Blackmagic camera app out of my phone, iPhone 11 into my Intel MacBook Pro. Use Lightning to USB-C and USB-A. Failed to get it recognized by Zoom or OBS. And a clean HDMI feed doesn't seem to work either. He's running iOS 16.5.1 and Ventura 13.5.2. Help. Jason. 
Hmm. Yeah, something's wrong with your capture card. First things first, you need an Apple one of these and nothing else. No substitute to it. Second, it needs to be powered. And third, it needs to go into a capture card that OBS can see and understand. Um, other than that, it worked the very first time that I used it uh, straight out. And this is not going trying to do a USB. It, it, is, he is, it looks like he's trying to do a USB connection, not an HDMI connection. Um, Clean HDMI doesn't work, so I I assumed he was going into a switcher. Yeah, but if you look at it above, it's a lightning to USB C and USB A. Um, I you know I, I do think yeah, Graham, you might want to restructure that and let us know what you're trying to do precisely there, because uh, we're not sure whether you're doing trying to do a USB connection, which can be done, but I don't think by an iPhone 11, maybe, um, but. Also, look at whether you're trying to connect via USB or HDMI. Next question. James Brooks from New York is up next. Any thoughts of the new OC Go Stream switcher? And he's got a link there. Courtney? Well, it's interesting. It looks like they're going after the ATM Mini market uh, with maybe a little more compatible mixer. I haven't tried one yet. Uh, it, it has a dual, dual bus setup there, so you have your program and uh, preview separate as opposed to how the uh, ATEM is arranged. And you also have the T-bar over here, so if you're a fan of the T-bar to move it back and forth, it's, uh, it's something you can actually grab and move. Um, so it's interesting. It looks like they're using the same button manufacturer or keyboard manufacturer as uh, Blackmagic is. So, uh, And the if you look at the outputs... Uh, it has, uh, oh, sorry, Here the, here's the back. Uh, it has some USB-C on it, so that's interesting uh, input and output. And I think one of the inputs can be, one of them is an input for a webcam, so that's interesting that you don't find on the uh, Blackmagic. So it'd be interesting to look at it. It's, it's 295 I think, so it's in the same price range as the entry-level uh, ATEM Mini. Jesse? They've hit this uncanny valley where it's so much like the Blackmagic, the, the A10 Mini. I I can only see like a cheaper knockoff version. I can't see it as its own independent switcher. And I feel like that was a huge whiff on the build. I want to touch those buttons to feel if it is the exact same button as the Blackmagic or if it is a cheaper version. Yeah, I think that stepping outside that ecosystem could be a little bit difficult. And, and I think that the hard part is, is how do you compete with... A much larger company, and I don't know if they've done what they needed to do to do that. I think people might use it as a, a if they didn't know that the ATEM Mini existed, they might use this. But I'm not sure, unless you're really connected to that T bar, <laughs> you know, like I'm not sure if it's if it's that. If I would be, I would find it that competitive, uh, especially if I'm gonna, uh, you know, you could cobble something together. But I'm not sure why you would do this. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, one difference is for the entry-level unit that the ATEM doesn't have is uh, multi-view. Uh, the the bottom of line, you know, 295 ATEM Mini doesn't have multi-view out, and this one does. So that's a major advantage it has over the ATEM at that price range. But it's at $100 more, right? And you get the—I I don't even think that the—I think the Pro is now 295 I, I don't even think that the Pro is— The Pro ISO—I think the Pro is—, is 
Yeah, maybe it is two ninety five. Yeah, I think I think they dropped the price on it, and it might have been co- coinciding with. Maybe they got they got this. rid of the entry the regular entry level. Yeah, I think that I think the regular Pro, entry level Pro got, is now the entry level. And yeah, maybe you're right. Okay, yeah, I stand so corrected. I, yeah, because I think it's yeah the Mini Pro, and then for a couple hundred dollars more, you have the ISO, the Mini Pro ISO for five hundred dollars, um, and. Again, for time and everything else, I would really look at you know I, the the advantage the one advantage of the OC as I believe all the controls are on the screen, so you can sit there and can set do all the settings without a computer. But the disadvantage is, is that all the controls are on a screen and you can't do it, you can't do it with a computer. So I'm not you know or or um, yeah push that out. I, I don't I don't know if that would be I would consider that a competitive one. I, I've seen this go I know people are reviewing it and it's kinda getting out there, but I'm I just have a hard time seeing why I would pick it over an ATEM. Uh, next question. James Haldane, Vancouver, Canada. Can anyone recommend lights for outdoor use use during the day? I have a client that hires us for press conferences and requires lights for the lectern. Is there a large backlight on set that we are not providing? Uh, there is a large backlight on set we're not providing. The sun. Bill? When you're fighting Phil with an outdoor location and the sun is behind there, you've got a challenge. The only thing I know of that does a decent job of this are the bigger panel arrays from companies like Light Panels. I think Aperture has one. Uh, I, I've used a Light Panels Gemini, which is about a $3,000 light in this circumstance. If you can get a hold of two of those and put them beside the lectern, they will add enough punch to do that. I think the same with the Aperture uh, 600C which is the one I've used most recently. It's less expensive. It's only $1,700, $1,800, but it's going to cost you if you want to do that. We used to use what are called HMI lights to do this in the past, but that technology is pretty much gone, and the newer lights like those I mentioned will give you enough punch to light up a face even if they're backlit. Uh, good, Jesse. The amount of power you need to, to battle the sun for, for light dominance is so great that you might want to bump up from lights to something like a sun swatter, a giant silk that you would put over your stage so that they're actually in shade. But when you're getting up to that point, you might want to just like go inside to a controlled environment. And I'm sorry, that's not the question you asked, but it just is such a, like it's, it's an arms race against the sun and it's a, a real challenge to win that one. Jason? Yeah, if you can't do this with a scrim to cut the black from under people's eyes, my immediate thought is that two PAs and very big warming reflectors will, um, will probably do you pretty well. Um, yeah, so you there's don't a- want to be standing at the podium when they're doing that. <laughs> this is go, deadly. Go ahead, Courtney. One thing you need to consider, you can get the small lights like, you know, the portable LED lights that have a you know, a 6,000 Kelvin setting on them. So they have to be dual color so you can set them to daylight. And you could put them on the podium themselves so that they're coming in with a little bit of front light. But like like I said, you're not going to be able to overcome the sun backlight. But the sun backlight, as as uh, uh, just as backlight, can be a little bit hotter a couple of stops over. But the problem is if you crank up those smaller lights and on the podium, they won't be able to use the podium to put their notes on to read off of because they're going to be blinded by the lights that are on either side of it. So that's a consideration to take into account. You may have to think of some other form of lighting that you can put on a truss or something overhead that you can uh, put some real lights on like the uh, Godox or something with a single point source light that you can focus down with a, a daylight to, to fill in their face uh, so that you can still maintain the brightness of your background and not have it blown out. Yeah, and I think that um, 
we'll, we'll, we'll keep on doing some research on that. I think we're going to talk about lighting here in the, in the not too distant future. Uh, but uh, I, I do think that what we try to do is really figure out a way to attenuate the sun as opposed to trying to compete with it. So as was talked about before, uh, we build huge silks as the ceiling. It, I'll be honest with you, it looks for press conferences, looks amazing. So if you can get, if you can build out something that goes out, um, so I don't, I don't think I have any pictures of this, but we've had ones that are as much as 20 by 20 that just go out over the, over the stage. And it just softens all the light as it comes in. And it actually looks way better than the hard lights that you'd be using to try to compete with it. Now, the backlighting is a whole other problem. But generally, I mean, generally for press conferences, we end up with step and repeat, which I'm not a big fan of. But we, we get that and it actually lights that very well as well. So, um, so just softening that up makes a huge difference. Next question. James Brooks is up next from New York. Now that iPhone has switched to USB-C, are you planning to replace all of your dongles with USB-C dongles or just get a lightning to USB-C dongle? Jason? Uh, In tech, we don't ever replace dongles. We just get more and more dongles. (laughs) Replace is such a big word. There's just a box. There's a box that's the lightning box. And then there's... (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I'd be very careful if they make a lightning to USB-C dongle because USB-C is a a multi-format type connection that supports multiple voltages, and I don't think the lightning supports the range of voltages that USB-C does. So the handshake in that little dongle may not be correct. Uh, so you you risk the danger of blowing up your iPhone with uh, if the USB-C when the the USB-C side talks to whatever power bank you plug it into, and they don't agree on the voltage, it could hit it with 12 volts, and it wouldn't be happy with that. Bill. Yeah, I don't think you're going to have to replace them because, let's face it, the the new USB-C is on the phone. That's the only place the lightning port used to exist. There's no outboard equipment that needs lightning in. So all of your USB-C to USB-C cables that are of the right class to do what you need to do, in other words, pass power correctly if you want it to power, uh, take the signal off at 4K or whatever, all the correct USB-C to USB-C or Thunderbolt that uses the same USB-C connector cables will work. I think we're just going to eventually end up losing our lightning cable ends as we migrate forward and never have to go back to them. Jason, real quick. Yeah, um, Apple does make a lightning to USB-C adapter and uh, it arrived yesterday. I haven't played with it. Next question. Next question comes to us from Scott Golf in Jackson, Tennessee. Do you have any recommendations for an outdoor camera that farmers can use to keep an eye on their automated equipment, for example, pumps, sprayers, and so forth? I think that one of the things you want to look at there is, you know, where do you have to put it? So if it, is it somewhere that's nearby uh, or and then there's also power? Um, do you need infrared? Do you need Wi-Fi uh, or some kind of wireless? So those are the things that you want to think through. Um, I think that there are, you know, a couple that are kind of built for this. So you're really looking for security cameras and potentially 4G cameras. One to look at is uh, RealLink uh, is, is, is one that I would probably take a look at. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, just it, it says this is going to be remote. If it's at distance and you're dealing with power, you're also dealing with connectivity. If you want to keep an eye on it in real time, that means it's going to have to have some sort of cellular or some kind of connection bonded into it so that it powers, captures, and sends back to a central station all wirelessly. And it, it, there are systems that do that, but they're not inexpensive. And usually they incorporate a pretty big solar panel out on the unit to keep it partially powered up. Next question. 
Chris Fenwick in Half Moon Bay, California. Mr. Preto, what can you tell us about Dojo? Mr. Preto? Mr. Fenwick, hopefully you're listening on your Air Jordan pods, whatever you call them. Uh, Dojo is the name from Tesla on their training hardware for their AI. Tesla has one of the largest AI platforms. In fact, last week they just launched, uh, I think, 10,000 H1100 cards. So they've got a huge infrastructure. So all the all the Teslas that are out there send all of that image data back to jo- Dojo, and then Dojo does the image recognition and then pre-trains their their models for for um, what do they call it full sol- full service driving full self driving FS- fsd yeah 12 i think on their on version 12 of that software so dojo is their platform for pre-training their ai models next question Hasma Gajar, a friend in Cape Town, South Africa, finally ready to deep dive into Companion 3 with the latest version of ZISO. Anything I need to be aware of before I attempt this learning curve? The, I mean, the main thing is, is that um, with Zoom ISO, this is ZISO, Zoom ISO, uh, with Zoom ISO, you just want to be... Um, you know, figure it out and go step by step. So the question is, how many channels do you want? Uh, we're doing, you know, we're finding that a Mac Mini M2 easily handles eight channels at a time. I would keep that density up um, as you as you kind of work through that. Um, the, uh, but you know, it's either going to be four outs or eight outs of that if you're doing SDI. If you're going to be doing, um, so the other question is, are you, or are you delivering to software? Are you going to Memo Live or are you going to vMix or other things? So. So look at what you're going to actually use there and try to figure out how you're going to incorporate that. But I would really think about that architecture um, as you as you go through it and maybe ask more questions here. A lot of us use Zoom ISO in many different configurations. And so um, think about what those what those might be. And um, and we'll uh, and, and we'll, we're happy to answer your questions, but really pencil out the architecture before you start buying anything or ha- it's, it's not it's worth thinking really hard about how many channels do you think you'll eventually need um, and, and that'll help you figure out exactly how to set it up next question Roz McNulty in Vancouver Canada up next I want to get a dual monitor stand from Amazon I want close to full motion not just one joint reasonable cord management anybody have any recommendations Chris yeah Roz I'm not exactly sure what you mean by full motion if you mean that you want it to go side to side up and down and tilt, um, that's a bit more difficult. I find that um, I don't have to spend very much at all on a monitor stand if I don't worry about going up and down. I mean, you can adjust it up and down, but it's, you know, you have to figure out where you want it. You have to loosen the Allen thing. You slide it up and down the pole and you go, okay, I need it to be this then you tighten it down. Then you can go side to side and tilt. And I'm amazed. Like I have two double monitor stands and I think I spent, I don't know, 50, 60 bucks for them. They don't, they didn't have to be super expensive. But if, but if by full motion, you mean up and down, I bet Courtney's got a good idea. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, I've, I've used, I've got a couple of that are these mono price that work pretty well. Uh, I think they have cable management. We can, Put the cables around, route them around the arm here and around the back and then down through the inside. One one tip for, these are fully adjustable, so it's two separate arms that you can, so you could swing them far apart, put a camera between them, or uh, they all have up and down, they're gas 
gas springs in there. Uh, so you'd have to worry about them losing their gas after a number of years. But for 119 bucks for two, one tip, though, is if you're putting it on a table, you might have to sacrifice the table because it's dangerous if these things slip off the edge. So I drill a couple of holes right here in the top plate and run a couple of wood screws into the top of the table to keep it from ever slipping off if you're trying to push... If you're trying to push that monitor away from you and you, you know, and it's uh, tied tied down or something and it pushes that clamp off the back of the table, you will be very, very upset. And I use the something very similar to what Courtney has, which is the Huano, Huanuo, (laughs) which is this one here. I have three of these on my desk right now. So this is the, um, these are the dual monitor stands. You can see I purchased it, this one two times and I have some other slightly different version of it. $125. um, They are a little stiffer than some of the nicer ones that I've used in the past. The Amazon makes some for about twice as much. Um, But these are, um, these have worked really, really well um, for me. And I I use them all day, all the time. And I can rock them back and forth and I can move them all around. Um, And um, they, I use them all the time to do exactly that. Next question. Mike Teal in San Francisco comes up next. Editing multicam in Resolve. Can I get the multicam window larger or use clean out with deck link? Is it it's uh, it's too small to see which angle to cut to? Jesse, I want to jump into this a little bit more today. So if you ask if the, if the answer I give you is not sufficient, ask again tomorrow or Wednesday and we'll see if we can do better. Uh, what I'm showing you right now is a 1920 by 1080. Uh, and be sure that you're turning off media pool effects and inspector. Oop, beep, bop, bop, boop, and inspector, and uh, you can adjust the height of your timeline. So that'll give you some uh, some more space up on your videos. And I've only got one up. Let's bring two up so that it looks a little bit more like what you are expecting. And there you go. That's that's kind of the best you can do at 1920 by 1080. I do want to look into this more because I imagine there's some better solution than what I just showed you. Good, Chris. You know, uh, Mike, you're right. You want to, you obviously want to see what you want to cut to, but I will remind you you're editing so you can redo it. You can change it. I will tell you my strategy when I'm cutting multicam in an edit, as opposed to, um, an actual live event, a live event, you get to interact with the feed. Hey, camera two, check your focus. Oh, it's good. Now take when you're editing, you got, you got what you got. You can't really change it. I like to organize my uh, multicam in a way that's logical to my fingers. And I just, I'll admit my first cut is very intuitive and very um, instinctive. And I'm probably going to change stuff. So um, I'm sure Jesse's comments about making it easier to see make sense. But I'm just going to say, like, above that, it's okay. You, you can you can change it. You are editing it. Go ahead, Bill. I'm going to also presume that uh, Blackmagic's Multicam works very similar to Final Cuts, because what I'm used to doing now is that if I want bigger pictures to be more precise about looking at my different sources, I go into 4-Up originally, do a cut through the line doing just those four cameras, then back it up and 
put another four shots in there. I could go to 16 or even 24 or 32, whatever the max is, but those are so small I can't see everything. And what I discovered was by doing it in passes like that, I end up making better decisions because I'm not overwhelmed by too many things to accurately judge. So uh, particularly if I have four primary cameras and then a lot of uh, secondary handheld and stuff like that, I'll cut the whole show with the four, then I'll come back and I'll add those spicy shots to make it more interesting. And I find that works really well for me. I'm going to presume that Blackmagic's Multicam does the same kind of thing. Coming up in just a couple minutes, uh, we'll be going into business brainstorming. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to talk about super sources. Now, we've looked at other people's super sources, but we're really going to go into it in a more intricate way, really looking at the construction of those and what we think about in those elements. And so really talking about, um, you know, all, how we lay them out and what that means and what does it look like. And we'll talk a lot about it related to the show. So stay tuned for that for um, a pretty detailed discussion of super sources. Um, on Wednesday, we we had a little issue last week with uh, in gray matter, and we're going to talk about it now. It's just some uh, some pipeline issues, and we're brainstorming. And it's it's an interesting one because we don't have the answer yet, <laughs> so we're still working on the answer. But we're going to walk you through it to talk about what those things might be and try to use it as a as a brainstorming possibility. It's kind of a new structure that we're thinking about of just really um, crowdsourcing our as we figure it out. Uh, we may have more data by the time we get there, but that's um, something we're going to work on with all of you to at least have you think about how we're thinking about it as we try to figure out the the issues there. Um, Thursday is going to be Q&A, do two hours of Q&A. So if you've got questions, especially about video, Thursday is a great day to do that. Friday, of course, we have a, a Corey, Corey Benke, an old friend of mine, is going to be coming on talking about the virtual video control room um, that he's been developing over the last few years with LiveX. And um, so we're really ex excited to have Corey on. He's, he's long overdue. And now we're going to jump into the second hour. Welcome back to the second hour, um, and uh, uh, we're glad to have you here. And we're going to be talking about business processes. What what do we want to talk about now? It's both business, it's creative, it's thinking about social networks, it's thinking about that process. And I think that we're trying to think about what we want to cover here. Um, so about once a quarter, we kind of stop and just kind of look down and say, okay, what are we... What are we doing here? You know, what are we? Where are we going? And um, and so we're we're going to be um, you know, think we want to think about it. We want your input basically on what you'd like us to talk about. Uh, sometimes we do this in Discord as well, but it really helps. It makes a huge difference, and it really sets the path for what we're going to do in the future. So go ahead and use Makana, or you can use the drop. So if you put that Q and A up, you can throw questions in. If you're watching this right now, um, now if you're watching it later, if you're not watching it live, don't don't do that. But if you if you go to askofficehours.com right now or use this little QR code here, um, you're going to be able to then um, uh, throw in your ideas um, that that we might be able to discuss here, and we can kind of start to think about um, where we where we want to go with this this day um, and how we want to manage it. And so, um, yeah, so so think about what those look like. Um, and and I think that uh, you know in the past, Liberty is here. We're really good to have. Ha it's good to have Liberty back uh, with us. And so she's she's here um, uh, to. Uh, uh, she's been the host for many of these many of these here. And so I, I think it'll be it'll be fun to see where we where we go ahead and take this um so go if for the panelists go ahead and raise your hand if you want to um talk a little bit about where you see this going and we'll go from there go ahead liberty 
Yeah, there's been so much just even bringing this, you know, the Mondays together, as you shared in the intro, that it's the business side of all that happens in production and digital um, events. So that's uh, we've had so many conversations. We've had conversations around project management, like even that topic has evolved so well. And I, I've been on listening in and, and watching the chat. And because this show is for like this day is for our community, this is why it's really important that we look at, okay, well, where else do we need to go? Does there need to be maybe a little bit of a shift? Um, we had earlier this year, or even in the past year, we've had a lot of people come on that will speak about Discord, like Keely Dunn has been on, and just the folks at Ecamm, and having those people come on, do we continue with that? Because that's helpful so that we can hear from them any like breaking news, the folks at Descript, but then also mental health and wellness. So we've had people like Bobby Hampton. So this is, I'm excited about today and hearing really what the community wants to see, because as shared earlier in the question and answer period before was, what if you make a change and then like it impacts your audience? So that's like the user experience. So what does the community um, want to see? I think we've done a great job in making sure we keep Keep up with like the AI conversation. So it'd be great to see what parts of that do people want to see and hear more about. We've done some things in AI production. Do we maybe try to go more down the uh, educational path or when I say education, like professional training, because again, of who our community um, is. So those are just some of the things that that I've been thinking about. And I'll probably come back as the panel <laughs> continues to to share. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I thought a good uh, a good topic might be uh, setting up a small business for the people that want to get into business. Maybe they're operating it out of their home to uh, take a look at all the legal requirements because you can get tagged if you're in a big city and you haven't registered your business, you're working with outside clients. Uh, and you haven't registered yourself as a business, there's city taxes and state taxes on businesses, you can get hit with a bill once they discover that you've been doing business in that city and state for back taxes. So uh, all the proper registrations, fire permits, if you're operating out of your house as a business, you have to register with the fire department and a number of things like that. So uh, just all the legal requirements in setting up a small business insurance to cover yourself, all of the, the legal requirements so that you can uh, run your business without being run out of business by somebody who's uh, got a, a pension for suing. Yeah, and I think that um, there is a, I think we have one coming up that is going to be talking about <laughs> uh 2020, like looking back, at a lot of us who have businesses, maybe not all the little details that you're talking about there. So I think this is still, I think the one you're talking about is, is a good subject on its own. But it's mostly like as we started a business and we ran it, we, these are the things we wish we had done or wish we had known uh, when we when we started. And so I think we're, we have that coming up. But I think the, the mechanics of starting a business, I think would be very useful. Go ahead, Bill. I'm interested in uh, talking a little bit more about time management in this respect. If you're starting your own business, keeping track of all the things you have to do and prioritizing them correctly. I know it was a challenge for me in my early days. I would get so caught up with making the work 
that I really pulled a ton of time from things like organizing the work, archiving the work, uh, doing the financial parts of things, figuring out what was being depreciated and when I was going to have to replace it and getting some goals set up so that I could consistently build over time and do better and better work without getting into trouble. So just the time, you know, everybody who's a, an entrepreneur in any respect, you have to learn that your time is probably the single most valuable asset you have. And if you don't manage it properly and miss things, you'll end up spending a ton more time than you thought on the thing that you thought was not important enough to spend time on later. Listening to you, I realized one one that might be useful is also just insuring your business. So just just a whole hour, get a broker in to talk about it because there are so many different types of insurance and then there's places to get that insurance and places not to get that. Like if you get a company that doesn't understand production and then you, you, you're, you're constantly building COIs for rental or they're not going to understand, they're not going to understand that this has to be done right now. <laughs> like, 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 like you, you know, when you're working with, when you're working with a production, uh, when you're doing production insurance, <laughs> we had the first production insurance that we had uh, was, you know, they were just useless. I, I'm not going to mention their name, but they, but they were not production. So they, we would say, hey, I need a COI and we'd get it sometime that week. You know, and that didn't, that lasted until we could change insurance agents or insurance uh, coverage because it was just like, when I, when I say I need a COI, I need it in like the next two hours, you know, not, not sometime in the, in the, in the near future. And then there's also, you know, one of the things that we, uh, you know, when, with Pixelcore, I mean, 090 has its own insurance, obviously with Pixelcore, because of the type of jobs we did, um, we had very large amounts of insurance, you know, and what that allowed us to do is take on those jobs without, you know, and gave you a, it told clients that you were a certain scale. You know, there's, there's a little bit of, it's not just insuring our gear, it's signaling. <laughs> like, hey, we're, we're big enough that we can handle this in a large event. We have $7 million of liability or whatever, and that's a different scale. And that you, you, and so talking about how those things affect business, I think would be useful. Go ahead, Liberty. I was trying to pull up um, some of our popular shows because just like content and social media, it helps. It doesn't hurt to go back and revisit something. So just looking at maybe some of our popular Monday shows and seeing how we might be able to go down, like, you know, go one level deeper. I remember like. Um, so I think we've had some around uh, operations like our SOP documents or mm -hmm. I might be off on the language there of which one it was. But the administrative side of things, I think it's also helpful. We've had some kind of leadership conversations last week of just like, how do you communicate those kind those not things, the things you do every day that if you could do them better, like how could that move the needle um, on your business? And then also, I think we've done it a number of times, but even just polling our community from the perspective of, you know, at the beginning of the year to where we are right now, what does our community look like for those who are involved on like Mondays who like they come for specific topics on Monday to see are those more freelancers? I've seen over the last number of months, a number of people have actually shifted to getting full-time jobs. So does our conversation need to shift a little bit more for those who are inside of an organization and how to help them? Like those are just some of the things that go through my mind when I'm always thinking about, well, what's the goal and who are we serving? Good, Bill. And Liberty reminded me, I think it would be interesting to do one just on relationship management. And I mean that in the sense of... Uh, 
employer-employee, but also in terms of uh, you as an entrepreneur and your clients and your vendors, spending a little time becoming personally more familiar and not making it a cold relationship, but a warm relationship. Can't tell you the number of times that that's paid off for me when I desperately needed somebody to come out and run me a cable. And I knew that my rental house, because I do a lot of not only because I do a lot of work with them, but because I've gotten to know the people, I can call them and say, can you save me? I need this weird cable and I need it as fast as possible. And they'll send somebody out in a car right now to get it to me in 30 minutes. And it saves shoots for me over and over again. So all those subtle little business relationships, human to human relationships, grooming them and paying attention to them and making sure people feel like they want to help you can be a huge asset to your business. And one of the things, the couple of things that came up while, while you guys were talking that I, that, that, that kind of sparked my thought process is um, potentially, uh, as Bill said, with time management, but also what that kind of built towards is work from home strategies. So if you're working from home, whether it's your own business or, or whether you're working for a company, really talking about, I mean, we're obviously probably on the front end of embracing the work from home because, uh, and, uh, but, but, you know, I think that how we build our studio, how we organize our time, how we, um, you know, um, f- structure it so that you're productive um, and that your company knows that you're productive, I think is important, is an important uh, hour to kind of figure out. Um, also, I think we should be bringing creators on at least once a month like we just just we'll i'll start working on that that channel and I, I know that liberty can work on that channel as well and but we'll just start bringing people in um different creators just to talk about their process as we as we go forward um i like the relationship management that was already talked about um i think that one thing that's interesting is 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 really figuring out how to balance doing what you need to do to pay the bills while you're continuing to work on what you want to do like where you want to get to um, and and I think that understanding how to balance that and understanding how to use what you you know use one thing for the next um, I think is important because I'm in a, I'm in a constant state of movement you know like with what I do and it may be in the company like I'm in the I'm in own I know but I also am always growing what own I know is doing like and figuring out where we're going to go next and and we're tooling up one thing to go to the next whatever you know what is the next big thing or what's the next thing that we can go towards it's never how do we i'm never in a in a position of how do we do the same thing over and over again for a decade i feel like that part of our of existence has kind of disappeared as as an option so i think that that's an interesting puzzle there to to talk about and i do think that we should be talking about ai at least once a once a month you know like just different aspects of ai and how we're using them in our business process go ahead liberty yeah, you also reminded me too of, I think it was said a little bit earlier too, like finance, while we speak on finances, but going back to like the sales conversation, whether that be you as a contractor or a vendor, how are you filling your pipeline? That could possibly be a guest that actually, because there's sales trainers out there that, you know, could come in and we are, whether that be a Q&A at first with them and then talking through that, I think that could be really valuable for people. People who are just like wanting to be more strategic and intentional with cash flow. Um, uh, that right there, accounting. Um, I know we've also said some things around legal. So we did have um, we had L. Elion on from a legal perspective, but we can go down those parts of like maybe patents going further there or copyrights. And um, and then also I put in the comments and I don't know if anybody had responded necessarily yet, but 
we have spoken about volunteers and managing volunteers. And what about the idea of like even performance reviews? I can't remember if we if we have. It's probably a really long time ago, but how to properly conduct something, um, some like performance reviews. The holidays are coming up. We could maybe revisit that volunteer conversation as different organizations and nonprofits are getting into that time where they're, you know, Giving Tuesday will be in roughly 60, 70 days and helping, you know, just helping people to prepare for for those types of things. So those are like probably four ideas right there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that finance, like I think finance and your company, like understanding how to how to manage finance, um, you know, or how to manage, again, the cash flow is when you're making a steady amount of money and it's just kind of predictable, which is where my company started, it was very easy to do cash flow analysis because uh, we were, we were, um, Pixelcore when it first started was subscription based and it was product based. And the interesting thing about that is there was just this constant, it wasn't a ton of money, but it was a constant flow of money that was, that was just coming in. So you're, our, we never really thought about cash flow because we just don't spend more than you're making. <laughs> Save a little bit, build up a cushion, don't spend more than you're making and just keep keep going. As we went into production, it was just, it, you know, we, we started growing so fast that we couldn't keep up with it and understanding that we could actually get s- too much production and blow out the company um, with by being too successful, I think is something that'd be really interesting to talk about. I think one thing to be interesting is bring a venture capitalist on to talk about raising money. You know, I'm in the middle of a lot of those conversations right now. And it's a, you know, a science to thinking about how you want to approach that. I've got a good friend that, um, that is advising me on some stuff right now. And it might be good to bring him on and see if he can't answer our questions related to that. Um, uh, I do think that separating out and having a whole thing about understanding patents and another one on copywriting, um, you know, copyrights, uh, not copywriting, but copyrights and IP, I think that would be uh, really, I, I think a lot of us, and there's even just, just the, just music IP is a whole world in itself that I think that it would be great to get, to understand the difference between performance rights, the, 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 um, uh, the, you know, who has what rights and what, who do you have to get approval to, to use their music or to, to do those things? Cause there's mechanical rights and there's performance rights and there's record, you know, recording rights. And these are all different sets that all have to be, some of them don't all have to be used all the time, but I think that we could talk about what, you know, bring some, bring an expert on to talk about those in particular. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I thought uh, was uh, a good second hour also would be the pros and cons. If you're an entrepreneur or a one-man band, in other words, or you're starting a small company, uh, the pros and cons against having it home-based or having a separate office address that you can, uh, you know, bill for and tax advantages, et cetera, you know, the differences between operating a business out of your home versus a small office that you rent somewhere, getting out of the house, the advantages and disadvantages, the tax advantages, the insurance advantages, and so yeah. on. So so weighing at home versus a small office somewhere. That's great. Let's go to the next suggestion. Dave Burke is up next in Alexandria, Virginia. I'm interested in issues around the return to the office. Orgs going from full remote to hybrid. Issues include how to enable effective hybrid work and or meetings, keeping teams engaged and creating effective events, both internal and customer. I think that's a good one. I think that, you know, really thinking about um, the process of how do you bring people back uh, how do you bring them back? I think is one is one whole process, and how do you keep them happy 
after they've been brought back. Because um, I think that the carrot is probably more effective. Most companies are finding that the carrot is more effective than the stick. Of telling people they have to come back is is been having companies have a hard time hanging on to their employees. But I think that there are some companies that are saying, hey, you can just do what you want. But then they're starting to create incentives. And we can start talking about some of the incentives we see other companies building that give people a reason to come back. Go ahead, Liberty. Yeah, so two ideas come here uh, from this question. One, possibly having someone human resources related to be able to come on and that be part of like the majority of the conversation with them of just how to take care of your employees and things to look out for. So that could be one um, vein there. And then just kind of like on social where people are always showing like they show their desk setup, but maybe more than just a desk setup, but actually going through almost, it needs a better name, but almost like a day in a life of like how you can be productive from home, something like some kind of productivity um, session that could be helpful because then me could possibly go into like tools and scheduling and the mixing all of the mental health elements. So again, this is just a brainstorm, but I'm just like throwing all that stuff to see what would stick. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Go ahead, Jason. I'm also curious, companies that were started during COVID, how different would they be, you know, as opposed to companies with, with you know, kind of that institutional memory? Yeah. And, and well, and, and what's interesting is I'd love to bring some companies on that when we talk about there's, there's bringing people back to hybrid, but there's also, I think that what this brings up also is uh, fully remote companies um, uh, because the there are companies that long before COVID, I, I don't, I'm not that interested in folks that, I mean, I am, but it's not so much who created during COVID, but before COVID, there's been companies that have been totally virtual for uh, decades, you know, in, in some cases, or at least a decade. And how do they operate and how do they, how does that actually work? And how do they, what operative practices they have that make remote work work? Uh, go ahead, Bill. Well, right on that, along those lines, it, it caused me to think here, do companies that have a significant remote workforce, do they have remote work worker coordinators in-house that are there at their desks as a process of liaison with their remote workers? Or is it still the same management team and that middle managers or others who are directly in contact with a workforce, do they get a... I don't maybe I'm not very good at handling remote people, but I still have to do it. So I'm doing it poorly. (laughs) Are there jobs in corporations now like that? Someone to handle a remote workforce because you know that they're a different breed than you're at the desk in the the main office worker. Yeah. And I think that I think there's a general one that's just managing meetings. And then I have another one. I think another one that is. Um, managing meetings in a hybrid environment, I think is, you could probably incorporate both of those into the same hour, but, or maybe I think we have hybrid meetings and just meeting, meeting structure, because I think that there's a, you know, with meetings, the most effective meetings are someone, someone has an agenda, but they never talk about it. So there's somebody who's going to tangentially run the event and they go, hey, how's it going? But they don't say, what's the next item in our agenda? That's the, that makes it feel corporate. Whereas someone is, is, has an organized structure to how they're going to get through the conversation. Um, but how do we make that feel fluid? And then the second one is, um, how do we do that over a hybrid? Because I think most companies don't know how to do that because when I'm in those hybrid meetings, they're horrible. <laughs> so, so they, uh, you know, uh, so I think that figuring out uh, how to do that, I think would be useful. Next question or next comment. 
Next comment comes from Douglas Carmichael. Entering the industry with a disability or neurodivergence and how to crack open the door. Yeah, I think talking about programs, especially for uh, neurodivergent, I think would be useful. What's funny is I think a lot of people are neurodivergent. It's just a, a what a what level and how well, the, how good they've gotten at coping with it. So, so I think that talking about what those are and taking advantage of those, but also I think talking about programs that are related to that because there are a lot of company programs that, that are designed for that. So I think it'd be, it'd be useful. Next question. Claude Lopez Waterman in Norfolk, Virginia. Business coaching. If you have a business that you've been running for many years, how to get out of certain ruts that keep you at a certain size? Yeah, I think that, that that's a that's a great one. So really talking about maybe having somebody come in that can think about the structure of how these things work. Good, Bill. Well, I'm always interested. What is the what is the certain size you're looking for, and have you thought about that, or does everybody go into business thinking someday I'm going to turn this into a Fortune 1000 company or something? I mean, those are two different life paths entirely. And I remember when I realized that the bigger and more complex my business got, the less I would be doing the work that I truly love doing. I would be more manager and less creative, and I had to come to terms with. Where does my building it stop, and where do my where does my enjoying doing it at the level that is sustainable and that I love? Where, where's that level? Yeah, I know that I I struggled with that a lot with Pixelgore, where we had you know we went we with six people I was kind of in the middle of all of it, which is both a little overwhelming and not. And also, but I, I learned a lot. And then, you know, when we had 40 employees, it was, it was a different a different structure. And I think I spent more time in Excel than or, or numbers than I did in, in any computer graphics program, Code Liberty. I heard two topics there. Um, one, possibly go, coming back to the mindset conversation or just personal development leadership, like how to get through those those mental blocks. But then also the scaling your business, like what does it take to scale and whether that be one show that breaks down, you're trying to get from zero to 100,000, 100. I think the, the way they do it is like 100 to half a mil, half a mil to if we do it from that perspective and or def- how we define scaling, if it is like numbers wise or scaling like geographically, but those could be uh, two interesting second hours. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, especially on business, if you're trying to expand, how to expand without losing control, because that is a major issue. If you're going to take on business partners, uh, how to keep them from taking over if you're a majority uh, shareholder, uh, and how to keep from being pushed out of your own business. It's happened to me, and it's happened to Steve Jobs. It's happened to a lot of people. So uh, how to maintain control when you find a product or a service that is expanding rapidly uh, without Uh, so that you can expand rapidly without uh, losing control of the company. Next question. Next question comes from Xander Snell in Miami. And Xander asks, topic suggestion, how do you limit the scope of your work so that you don't seem overly restrictive in your agreement, but still protect yourself from the demands to do something that you didn't anticipate? Yeah, I think that scoping work is really important and figuring that out and, and figuring out also, I mean, I think we've talked about it a little bit, but figuring out the bidding process so that you are accounting for some flexibility. Um, I think that the, the, the challenge a lot of people have is itemizing absolutely everything means also the client doesn't have any flexibility. They got that approved and now there's nowhere to go without a change order. And that works in some places, but in corporate man, do they really enjoy just being able to ask for one little thing and not have it be another line item that shows up at the bottom. Uh, go ahead, Bill. 
Yeah, I, I remember those discussions about balancing as I got bigger and got larger com- uh, clients. You know, it was suddenly the the agreement became more important and the lawyers were involved from both sides. And you're sitting there negotiating terms of these 20 page and 40 page and then 100 page agreements. And it's eating up a lot of effort and time. But if you don't play a certain amount of that game, you can't get to the next level. So it's it's that balance of how much do I want to do that and become that and how I think it goes back to what I answered before and how much do you want to stay smaller but more flexible and more able to exercise your creative muscles go Jason yeah this smacks of when and how to say yes versus when and how to say no and um, you know when you need to pivot and when when you end up getting pulled off of what you do best Liberty there are two sides to this. Um, there could be, Bill said that, and I actually put that in the comments too, asking what about a second hour on negotiations? So it could be just more so the communication side, how to have healthy negotiations when you're negotiating internationally, things on like, so that could be one area, but then the actual tactical side, which we just discussed of what that looks like, drafting contracts, etc. Yeah, I think that negotiating also, um, I think, pushing ideas forward in a in a powerful way. I think that there is a, you know, there's this challenge oftentimes that, you know, if you're in a large corporate environment, especially, but even if you're in just any kind of group, you've got some ideas of where you want to go, but you may not have the authority to do that. But how do you keep keep those ideas going and, and hopefully in a positive direction as opposed to just giving up or uh, again, uh, you know, and, and again, it's, it, there's a lot of how do you get buy-in across many, many divisions or many, many different stakeholders. Um, and that sometimes can take time. Uh, next question. Next question comes from Tlaloc Lopez Waterman again from Norfolk, Virginia, intellectual property. How do you deal with protecting and making intellectual property work for you? Courtney. Yeah, that would be a good second hour topic, especially to have a lawyer on who's an intellectual property lawyer. It might be kind of expensive if we have to pay him. Uh, but uh, yeah, one one mistake made in protecting your intellectual property can ruin your business. So if you forget to renew something or forget to deciding whether to cover your intellectual property with a trade secret, patent, or copyright, and those are all quite different. They all cover different things. Uh, different types of, all offer different types of protection. So having a, a someone on who's an, who's an expert in this field of protection of intellectual property would be great. Second hour, Bill. The, from the point of view of um, of generating it, I love all that. The other part is using it. So we've talked a little bit about people who make bad mistakes because they use IP that they don't have clean rights to, and they get in trouble downstream because of that. So it's I think. Intellectual property is a whole topic. What is the, if you have some and you want to protect it, that's important. If you want to use some, what's the proper way to find out whether that's possible and how do you negotiate that? Next uh, comment. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana. How do you measure your success? Repeat clients, audience engagement, meeting payroll. Well, I'll tell you the meeting payroll is the one you pay the most attention to. I don't know how you measure it or not, but but it's a pretty solid measure because it's survival. Um, the uh, so I think that um, that's a, that's a good one to talk about. But I do think that um, paying attention to those things I think makes a sen- makes sense. I think that there's a I think we we keep on dancing around it a little bit in our discussion, but there really is how do you like how much do you focus on 
repeat clients versus, you know, new client acquisition. You know, repeat clients are the thing that is oftentimes the lifeblood of a company. It's so much less expensive to get a client that's going to keep bringing work to you than it is to find new clients. But it, it also can get you kind of pour concrete into what you do. And um, if you get one repeat client that is becomes too much of your payroll, a small change on their end um, becomes, uh, or too much of your, a small change on their end can end up, um, you know, devastating you. Go ahead, Liberty. And Roscoe, you made a really good point here with the, I'll touch on the audience engagement. We could delve or revisit the analytics aspect of things and maybe one of these days looking at a potential creator or possibly even someone in product development somewhere, maybe it's some SaaS company where analytics is really important because I think that would really be helpful for us to see what changes have happened in the last year, whether you're looking at social or just even business anal- uh, anal- <laughs> business a- analytics. Um, so yeah, the, there's three second hours right there. Uh, next comment. Next comment comes from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. How to get started. What do you wish you knew earlier in your career? Yeah, we have that one coming up. <laughs> I think it's next week or the week after that one. We're definitely going to talk about uh, looking back, you know, um, that and and a lot of us talking about things that we wish we had known, someone had told us about um, be, before before that happened. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Um, next, uh, next comment. Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, a topic on how to deal with hiring freelancers and what's needed to keep good teams together. Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, it's super important, and it's something that I, I definitely um, uh, work on very diligently to try to keep that going. And, and how do you have continuity in in a lot of ways, both continuity and flexibility? Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and you could work into that compliance with local, local and state and local tax laws because depending upon what state you're in, it, it being able to hire a freelancer and pay them as an independent contractor may not be possible. We have to make them an, uh, an employee. So well, whether I, or not uh, they're an employee or a freelancer might be a good topic too. Yeah, and I think that that what will be really useful is to talk about um, to talk about business structure for freelancers. I think that's a different subject, but I think that like for instance in California, we now recommend everybody gets an LLC because then we can just hire them. <laughs> you know, so it does mean more work on their end to do that. They can't just be like just taking money and and so on and so forth. They now have to pay their payroll taxes, which is of course what the whole AB five thing is about: is getting people to pay taxes. Uh, go ahead, Liberty. Taxes. That's that's a good one taxes. right there. Even oh <laughs> taxes. Um, you JJ, said the I wanted T to word. <laughs> right bring this um, comment that JJ had said earlier, and I think it fits in here. He was saying um, training and empowering in-country managers for remote teams is imperative as there might be cultural communication differences. So just under this umbrella of having international freelancers and what steps you need to take, there could be something helpful and possibly um, having some of our international folks to lead that conversation. How are they doing it um, on that side as well? I think that just a, a subject of doing, uh, I, I wrote down, um, uh, doing events in remote locations. So if you're, you know, if you're doing something in a new location in another country or that's very distant, like how do you get started with doing that? Because it's something that we've had to deal with on almost every continent and really talking through that is the first time you do, the first couple of times you do it, it's stressful. And then after a while you start to pick up speed. Go ahead, Bill. I could see a whole show just on freelancing. 
what skills, yeah. what what structure, how how do you charge for it? What's sustainable? Uh, yeah. You know, there our business lives and dies by the availability of freelancers to support crews. What's that like? Absolutely. Uh, next comment. Tlaloc Lopez Waterman, Norfolk, Virginia. How to combine forces with longtime collaborators and protect yourself in the future. Yeah, we talk about that one a lot um, in that there's a like folks who grew up in politics and some people will call this the the good old boys network or the old, you know, the good old persons network, whatever you want to call it. But there is a um, there is a mechanics to that that I think that most people don't understand. I think most people in the in our industry doesn't they don't really understand, you know, a lot of us you know, when you get into a position, you try to spread the wealth where you can as fast as you can. And the people who understand politics and understand the the nature of things are oftentimes, you know, they're hiring the people that they know. They're hiring, they're um, m- making recommendations for them to, to take on a business or take, you know, I can't do this, but I'm going to hand it off to someone that I know. And how that, how you do all of those things, I think is it becomes something that helps you embed. You know, one of the easiest ways that we talk about it here is, of course, you know, when you share knowledge, whether it's in Discord or as a panelist or whatever, you're you're quickly spreading out the spreading the wealth out to other people so that they can be successful, and that's building a connection with them. And a lot of those kinds of things over very long periods of time benefit someone. It builds up a certain inertia that is it, it makes almost no uh, return in the short term, but it builds up something that over years or decades makes it much easier to operate. And I think that the people understanding that, I think a whole discussion about that would be useful. Go ahead, Bill. On both sides, first seeking and uh, nurturing collaborative relationships with others, but then also managing falling outs uh, over and over again. I know people who have been in business for, you know, 10 or 15 years with somebody and they get to a point where they just hate each other at this point And they're now they're working at cross purposes. And how do you either manage or extract yourself from that when your business might be in part supported by that relationship? Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I don't know if there is a solution to this, but uh, how to prevent a collaborator or employee from becoming a competitor uh, when things do go south and uh, they they split off or you, you end your collaboration, how to prevent them from being your major competitor and taking all of your, you know, proprietary information or business knowledge or client list and using it against you. That, how to protect yourself from that is would be a good second hour. And if you have a solution, call me. well i think that i think that there's a there is a um uh building a relationship with your client i think that's a whole that's probably a whole second hour of just how do you build that relationship with your client that is more than just you doing the jobs for them but you're really um you know a lot of my I, i mean i consider my clients my friends you know if i don't i don't keep them as a client i'm not i'm not that i don't i don't work with people i don't like you know, so like it's just, it's just I'm 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 a little particular that way. It's probably not good for my business, but it's really good for my soul. Um, is that I, I I may not work on things all the time that I think are going to be groundbreaking or whatever, but the people I work with I like, and if not, I try to work them out of my system um, so that I don't have to talk to them anymore. Um, anyway, so um, but I but I generally enjoy everybody that I work with, and and I think that that creates a different. Um, relationship where you're, you know, sending, you know, you know, but what, what, what do you do to, to build that relationship um, in a, in a really authentic way, I think is the important thing there. Go ahead, Liberty. 
that we can probably revisit even like crisis management or client um, conflict mm-hmm. resolution that because you can those skills will be valuable wherever you go, whether you're working for yourself or you're inside of an organization. And then just even the the I want to say it's relationship relationship management, but I've heard that more so within an organization, like in a startup where there's someone who's like dedicated to court and deal with uh, deal with investors or courting investors. So just the relationship management there. Um, so that could be something that could be really helpful. And um, I'm not sure where this could fit in and it could be something completely different, but even the idea of like white labeling your business. So you are working on like working with another company and then like it's their name on it, but you're kind of or subcontracting. If we go back to those um, topics, those could be um, just helpful looking at the entire demographic of our community. Yeah, I think that that's I think there's a because I think it goes into freelancing as well because it's it's one of those things that, for instance, if someone brings me in to do, um, when you come talk about build, build, building these relationships, when someone brings me in to work on a project, if I, if I haven't worked with that client, I'll never work around them ever. Like I just never, you know, like it doesn't matter whether they even know that I did or didn't um, because I know that building relationships with the people around you is more important than within one job. <laughs> you know, and so, uh, and so I think that, um, but I think that most people, a lot of people miss that and they don't realize how much we, we notice. We don't, pe- people don't tell you that it's happening. They just notice that you're selling yourself to the client and they stop hiring you <laughs> because, you know, like, and, and that's when you talk about that, that defense mechanism that Courtney talked about. Uh, next question. Uh, Roscoe Jones, Madison and Anding, Anna, building a track record. How do you streamline consistent work like real estate training, NVR videos to lessen the stress for all and maximize profit per video? Good, Bill. Yeah, that, you know, listen, this is uh, adjacent to what most of us who do uh, algorithmic type work like uh, video editing or something like that. We, we have these processes that we keep coming back to and we refine the processes, kind of a best practices kind of thing. And you really don't get efficient unless you really do break down how you do task A and all the steps involved in it. For me, I, I actually make flow charts about if I want to uh, compress this for that station or something. I'll have block one start here, block two start there. And once you get things tied down like that, um, once you get a workflow, which I think is the modern language for this, um, getting it communicated to everybody and say, if we do it this way every time, we will find it much easier. We will be faster and more consistent and the end product will be better by following the workflow chart for doing these things rather than make it up. You know, before I started using work orders when I was at the most productive, we had problems all the time. People saying, you know, what, what was that job number on that thing? And nobody knew exactly how to identify projects and all the pieces. Once we did that, it became so much easier. Everybody knew where all the information was and I ended up getting a tenth the calls I got before we used that system. Next comment. 
Next one comes from Rian Smith in Trinidad, West Indies. Would you all be interested in visiting other countries to help grow the knowledge there? Example, a lovely, warm Caribbean island. I'm open to hosting linkages. Rian, that's a scary thing to propose to this group. <laughs> I, I will. Uh, I'll let you know. I'll send you my flight number as I as I make my way there. I'll be next week. I will be coming to you live in office hours from Trinidad uh, in the West Saint Indies. John's. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Trinidad. Rian's in, in Trinidad. That sounds. Oh, that's right. Uh, Liberty. So I've hit Jamaica this year and actually was live from Jamaica. I need to hit Trinidad. So I'm with I'm with Alex okay. on that. We're, exactly. we're ready for that. Um, but maybe that's a panel that really could be just we pulling some of the ideas that we've had about the international, um, how people are doing things internationally that, you know, Rian, if you want to come on and, and, and join us up here and then just talking about how that happens. And I think what he also alluded to or what I'm pulling out from his conversation is also like training and talking about we could have a a second hour just even around training and how best to what that should look like. Do uh, systems for training monthly, weekly, what that looks like? I know that I've I think it was like early spring just implemented, Okay, I'll. This is where we are with AI and just what everyone else needs to do. We have a dedicated Slack channel to do those things. So just those tips on how to um, to get the knowledge and maintain and ensure that everyone is stays up to speed. So I'm um, just riffing off of your your idea there, Rian. Next comment. Craig McFarland, Boston, Massachusetts. How to best use business mentors, advisors and consultants without getting used by them. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I think some of these contracts are more difficult to get out of than a vacation timeshare. So getting involved with the business consultant uh, on a retainer basis and so on, you know, how to set that up and how to be able to extract yourself from that when you find that their consultation is no longer relevant to your company. I also think that figuring out how to retainers, I think, is a whole nother process because I I go in and out of lots of retainers. So there's a portion of my uh of my time that is just bought up by a, by a company, um, to work with them and to be available for them and so on and so forth. And so I think that that's, um, that I think that's a useful, um, thing to be discussing, you know, in that, in that process code bill. I don't know if SCORE's still around. There used to be a thing called SCORE, the Service Corps of Retired Executives. And it, it may not be that you don't need executive help, but the idea of people who uh, have grown a business themselves and now they're looking to help the next generation of business people, if you can find those people, and they make great mentors in this. Yeah, I have to admit, almost all my mentors are friends. <laughs> like, and, I, and I talk to them every day. Like I talk to different ones all the time about what I'm working on to get their feedback. Uh, next question. To, uh, Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana. How do you find on-camera or on-stage talent to boost your production quality? How do you coach, edit the boss client to look better on camera? I think those are even two different subjects, you know, because really finding talent, on-air talent is, there's a lot of criteria and we have to do this all the time from what I do now. And and it is, um, you. it's really defining what you're looking for. You know, like in defining what they need to do, are they going to draw audience? Are they going to themselves? Are they just there to deliver questions? Are they there to know the subject? Are they there to know, you know, so I think there's a a bunch of places that we can talk to related to aggregating or or attracting or finding that talent 
I think there's a whole other thing about how to make the boss client look good and sound good. Uh, and I think that those are two very distinct things that I think would be great subjects. Go, Bill. Yeah, it's changed so much. My wife does a lot of casting for an agency locally, and the, that has all completely changed. I mean, once upon a time, you did casting calls, you had people show up, you could talk, you know, talk to them, interact with them. Now, if that is done. It's done on Zoom and things like that. And you never know really what people look like. And I've had circumstances. I mean, it's just, it's really hard to make that connection with who's going to be really not just appear the way you want them to on camera, but have that, that connection ability to talk to people if you're looking for a video or something like that and make that connection. Those people are relatively rare. And I, there are some, I think it's harder now because there's so many outlets for them. And it's the same thing I see on the audiobook side. I've been playing with that, but there's just, there's a gazillion people looking for that work, but the quality range of the actual talent of those people is all over the place. There are fabulous people and there are a few of them. And there are a lot of journeymen who can do the job from all over the world. But then there's also this huge pile of people who've said, I want to do this. And they come in from their living room and they're just not really particularly skilled at it. Hard to sort it out. Yeah, I think also, um, I think one of the things is just speaking uh, that I was thinking about speaking at events, you know, just just really how do you do it? You know, how do you approach that um, as a personal um, thing as, as well? Because I, we're going to talk about this in a second with Doug, Douglas's next question, but that's how I go to events as I speak. Um, next question. Next question from Douglas Carmichael, effectively attending trade shows or conventions. And what I just mentioned before is that, for instance, as an example, I almost never go to an event that I'm not either covering or speaking um, just because it makes it so much easier to make to get connected to people. Go ahead, Bill. Well, I've said this before. I had an epiphany back in my early days. I used to attend conventions, and then I finally made the mental fifth flip to understanding I wasn't attending it. I was working it. I had to have a set of goals. Why am I going to this? What am I trying to accomplish? And then once you have a set of goals, you can understand whether the decisions you're making about what path you take through the convention or what path you take, almost equally important, after hours to go to events and to meet people, you can assess them based on whether they meet your goals. But if you're just going to say, I'm going to look at all the shiny objects, you get nothing done. Maybe you'll learn a little more about the stuff and maybe you'll accidentally run into somebody. But boy, conventions to me are something that that requires a lot of planning and a lot of work. I will say I occasionally go to a convention where I'm not speaking or I'm not covering it. And it's so much fun. Like I just get to walk around, ask questions. It's, it is it is good. Like it's, it, it really is enjoyable. I just don't I've, I've done like six of them in the last 30 years. I go to Liberty. It's definitely a different a different mind show, mindset when you're not on because if you're the speaker or if you're there to to get leads, that's a completely um, completely different mindset. But on this topic here, I'm wondering if there is if we did something like this, is it maybe a little bit more branding as well? So if you are if you're the speaker, as you pointed out earlier, making sure you have a landing page or a media kit, and I know different at different points of your career that you may you may not need those things but just maybe some of those those items or marketing materials to promote yourself go ahead courtney 
Yeah, I'm not sure whether we're looking at, uh, you know, if you're just an attendee at a convention or whether your company wants to exhibit at a convention. You know, that would be a good second hour. The, the trade-off of whether or not it, uh, to have a booth at a convention or not, or whether just to do it virtually or launch on your own, use your own marketing stuff. And if you're just talking about attending trade conventions, maybe a whole segment on how to dress for success and how your wardrobe may make a difference in how they treat you at convention. Yeah. Uh- it's a little getting close to a third rail, but talking about wardrobe is is pretty useful. Like it's it's a uh, um, you know there's a lot of singling uh, of signaling that goes on with how you how you dress. You know, like for instance, I'm a good example of my general state is um, a flannel shirt and and uh, cargo shorts. Um, is generally like if I'm left at my house, that's all in bare feet. <laughs> I just walk around like that. That's what I look like all the time. If I look like anything else, I've made a decision. Like, you know, I've made a decision that this is something that this is where this this looks and this is how this looks. And and I think that um, understanding what that means and why we make those decisions, I think would be really, uh, really useful. I was also thinking about, um, you know, so exhibiting and convention, also content marketing, just understanding content marketing. Like, why would you do that? I think it'd be useful. Uh, next question. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana, right back with this one. How do you ensure good communication with clients, with crew, and with third parties, and also locations, venues, and caterers? Yeah, I mean, I think that just general communication, both before, after, and during the event, I think is really a really great subject, which I've not always been good at. <laughs> so so I think that that would be a good one for us to discuss uh, techniques to do that. Um, next, uh, next comment. Ah, uh, next comment from Brody Hefner, New York City, production case studies. For example, saw a documentary filmmakers webinar on how they've become more efficient through the integrated use of AI or LLM tools for summarizing interviews, storyboarding, drafting outline scripts, grant applications, and so forth. Yeah, I think that this is uh, um, uh, figuring out how these LLMs, you know, work. I mean, we, we found one. I know this is like just where we're using it. I think that there's almost like a, almost every quarter that we have to come back to it and go, how are we using AI? How are we using AI? Because I know that one of the things that we found that AI is not 100%, but far more effective than most things is asking people. You'll notice that our, our pronunciation of many people's names has gotten pretty good um, recently between the different readers and so on and so forth. And, and some of it's been a lot of work on our end. But one of the things that we've started to do is ask, one of the things I'm doing is asking ChatGPT, how do I pronounce this name? And it just gives me this paragraph of how, 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 to, how to say a name. It's not 100%, but it's been much better than what I've been doing before that. Go ahead, Liberty. Brody, this is a great idea. And it, instantly I was like, oh, you know what? While we collectively think about and talk about how we're using it, but bringing on some, as Alex said, some content creators or some creators um, who are actually using it in different ways as well to just hear about their workflow and their processes would be really great. Next question. Next question from Tlaloc Lopez Waterman, Laura for Virginia. Branding, branding, branding. It's funny. I think I'm quite poor at this, so my version is old school word of mouth. Should I change that? Don't answer that now. 
<laughs> no, I think that's great. Brand, like how you get out there, how you make sure people know that you're out there doing it. I think there's a lot of times when we're producing great products, but we don't have, you know, it's it's not good enough just to be, I mean, you can be good at it. I, I have to admit, I built an entire business with a website that didn't say what we did. It actually said something different. So we were like, but that was branding. Like it was secret, it was the secret door that people would um, be told that there's a door. If you go to this one URL, you'll see what we actually do. Um, and they love that. But that's, that it was, it was part of the, part of the mystique. I go, Bill. Yeah. And, you know, branding is one of those things where if, have you thought about it at all as an individual, you know, we all do things. So have you spent any time deciding what your brand should be? Uh, Most people haven't. And that's maybe a miss in this day and age. Courtney? Well, we could tie this into the one on trademark or business registration of protecting your intellectual property is uh, whether or not, you know, if you have to pivot and change the name of a product or change the name of your company, how do you handle that without losing all of your clients? That would be a good branding discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Next question. Douglas Carmichael, dealing with equipment vendor technical support. Yeah. I think that like how to get the most out of that. I think that there's there's definitely a uh, a way to get support out. I know that there was a thing that uh, I was working in a group and I would always get every request that I wanted from the software company and no one else would. And they'd ask like, why are you, do they like you better? The answer is yes. I hung out with them all the time. I talked to them about stuff every day and I sent very detailed uh, requests that that understood what they were dealing with on the programming side um, that that asked how to do it and, and made it as easy as possible. And those things made a huge difference in how quickly things got done. So I think that understanding that is super important. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, this kind of ties into trade shows as shows as to how to find the right people at a uh, equipment manufacturer to deal with so that you can deal directly with them and to develop a relationship with them. And that way, once you develop a relationship with the you know product manager for a product at a, at a large company or equipment manufacturer, you can kind of go directly to them and establish a direct uh, email co- connection with them. So how to set up those channels and uh, how to find the right person to talk to at a company to maintain your equipment technical support is the key. Now we're going to go because kind of we, we, we started very slowly, but now we have all these ideas starting to roll up. So one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to kind of go into a uh, lightning round. So for the panelists, just 10 seconds each if you're going to say, if you're going to add anything. But otherwise, we want to make sure we get all of these into the show so that they're encoded into the process. So um, next uh, suggestion. John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. How to deliver great customer service when things go wrong. Yeah, it's great. Um, definitely important uh, piece. And sometimes it'll build a better connection with your client. Next question. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana. How do you optimize your content to make sure your product gets seen? What are your marketing plan to make sure you stand out from the crowd? Yeah, yeah Bill. If you answer that and can find an answer, I can make you a billion dollars. It's the hardest thing in the world because it's so fragmented out there that trying to find the right way to market things that doesn't cost you too much or take too much time is very difficult. Next comment. Uh, Cindy Drozda, Erie, Colorado. I'd like to hear strategies for building an online audience. Yeah, I think that I think that that talking about that and I think bringing some folks from YouTube from. YouTubers or people who are dealing with analytics or people who are designing those things. I'm I'm working on some folks that we'll see if we can bring in. Uh, Next uh, comment. Kyle Hammond in Chicago, Illinois, succession planning and setting up a business to fill gaps so that continuity is maintained or not and knowing the difference between the two. 
Yeah, I think it's huge. Building subsystems as well as how you train people and build up that process is super important. Uh, next suggestion. Roscoe, oh, I'm, yeah, Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana. My final idea, how do budgets affect the technical and creative aspect of a mm. project? Yeah, yeah, I think that that's a great one. Um, yeah, uh, next comment. Going back to Trinidad for Rian Smith again. What are the good ways an independent streamer to show a market whose primary concern is cost that you're a high quality option worth spending more budget on? Yeah, figuring out how to show that value add is really important. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, and I'd connect it as much as possible to end results. Remember that you're supposed to be making them money if you're doing work for them. The point is not for you to just take it all, but if you do effective work, you should be able to figure out strategies for showing them how they will do better if they pay you more. Yeah, go ahead, Liberty. This could work really well as whether it be pitching. So pitching yourself and just having a whole conversation there and just overall sales, which is pitching. So either way, that would be great. Yeah, I think that pitching decks would be useful because it's it, it's a thing. You know, like I, I take a lot of work from other people because I'm good at pitching. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, I'm good at pitching a deck and I, because they'll send something that's like a little PDF that has something that's broken down and I'll send a deck that explains exactly how we're going to do this. And I think that that's a, it's a useful skill to talk about, Code Courtney. Yeah, introductory or discount prices, whether or not it's going to saddle you at that lower price forever and how to avoid that. Pricing in general, just pricing is a whole, probably a whole second hour. Um, next, next, uh, next comment. John Snyder, Reno, Nevada, following up on Roscoe's idea, the PM triangle, cost, quality, time, and specifically, how can you leverage the two sides of the triangle you can control in creative way? For example, how to generate more human hours of work. Yeah, that's great. Uh, that, definitely worth talking talking to. Uh, next, uh, next comment. Eric Hertz in Hartford, Connecticut, brainstorming. What is the mission and vision of office hours? And that is a Sunday question. <laughs> so we we talk about that. We'll answer that. It'll be slightly different every week, but it's, it stays pretty consistent. It's been pretty consistent for the last uh, uh, um, you know three years. I, I was I almost said decade, but we're still we still got a little work to do before we get to a decade. That's great. Um, really, really great suggestions. I was a little worried. I was like, this is going to be a 10 minute show. You know, like, like it, it, there was no, there was no comments and there was no, we now have like a year's worth of comments here. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we, I wrote them all down. I wrote them down while you're posting them. So I, I was cutting and pasting them. I was also writing down the ones that were coming up in between. I think that Liberty's probably written a bunch of them down as well. And the team on the back end is doing that. So we, we have them all there and we have a lot to dig through to try to start to build that out for the rest of this year, as well as going into next year um so thank you so much for the producers for so much great um so many great suggestions um thanks to the panel for the great suggestions and the comments um i think we had a really really productive hour and that's what these brainstorming is about is every once in a while kind of checking back in because we want to keep it flowing and you know even if we haven't gotten through all of the ones that we had suggested what are we thinking about right now? What is the quote unquote zeitgeist of, of what we're doing at the moment? Um, and so I think that we've got a lot of great ones to kind of work through. And um, now we've got to put some meat, meat on them and figure out exactly how to get them into the show. Um, so really, really great work by both the panel as well as the producers. And by the way, 
lots of great questions in the first hour. So we had, um, you know, just a really a lot of popcorn there. Just we were just kind of moving through them. Uh, I think we had great questions. We had some great answers. Um, so a really, really strong day today. So great work to everyone. Thank you again for to the incredible crew on the back end that makes all this possible. You know, there's a team that's developing the software. There's a team that's cutting the show as you watch it. This is not just your standard Zoom. Um, and there is a team that's managing it all, trying to figure out what these second hours are going to be and who's going to do them and how they're going to do them. And, and that's all, um, you know, pretty tight process there. So we really appreciate everybody's um, contribution into that. Today, we traveled in this discussion 149,000 miles. That is uh, 241,000 uh, kilometers. And I, I don't know if it's a record, but man, it's definitely top five or top 10 today. Um, and that is, um, it's 1.187 billion, not million, but billion bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. So many, so many miles. Lots of bananas. So I just bananas. don't eat on potassium. Looking so at that number. Potassium. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Treasure trove. Those are business bananas too. Yeah. <laughs> business bananas. Yeah, Carbon great. neutral bananas. Carbon neutral bananas. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. I mean, are, are bananas carbon neutral? They might even be like carbon. I think they come in a cargo ships, don't they? Apple bananas have stopped using leather in their peels. Okay. <laughs> Lots. There you go. All right. Thanks, everybody.